So before we begin, I just want to remind uh, everybody, uh, again, of the persecution that these early Hebrew Christians were under at the time. Uh, this letter was written sometime between uh, 67 A.D. and 69 A.D. It was before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., but also after Nero had burned Rome in 64 A.D. So you can see they're wedged right between some pretty critical periods of history here. Uh, Roman historian Tacitus recorded the following about Nero's attempts to deflect public blame over his burning of Rome and falsely accusing the Christians. Tacitus says, and so to get rid of this rumor, Nero set up as the culprits and punished the most, to the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations, who were commonly called Christians. Christus from whom their name is derived, and that's basically Christ, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Checked for a moment, this pernicious superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to... Um, who, who, to confess to being Christians, then on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as because of their hatred for the human race. I thought this was a very interesting statement because Christians are accused of being haters. This is not new. As the Lord says, there is nothing new under the sun. This is how they were characterized then, how we are often characterized now. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his gates for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of charioteer or drove about in his chariot. All this gave rise to a feeling of pity even towards men whose guilt merited the most exemplary punishment, for it was felt that they were being destroyed, not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. And um, recently I just saw the movie of Paul the Apostle, which depicted some of these cruel acts that were going on in Rome at the time. And it just gives you a very vivid picture of how egregious the persecution was against Christians at that day and time. This is why they considered going back to Judaism, because obviously practicing Jews were no threat to Rome at that time, which says a whole lot about practicing Jews, I guess. They religiously had no impact on anybody, <laughs> apparently. And so they were not the victims or the objects of this persecution. And so these Hebrew Christians were thinking, they still got it going on over there. I think I want to go back. The temple was still open and operating. They were still giving their sacrifices and rituals. But chapter 12 gives us the hope to run and win the race of faith. We win it through discipleship, discipline, focus, perseverance, perspective, and eager anticipation. So we're going to begin with the hope we have as disciples in Jesus in verses 1 through 11. 
Verse 1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Bam, right off the bat, we could spend all night just on that one verse, couldn't we? But we don't have that kind of time. But I will mention that the practical applications in the book of Hebrews are presented from chapters 10, verses 19, through chapter 13, verses 25. And chapter 12 is right smack in the middle of all of these strong exhortations and warnings against conduct that could cause believers to miss out on the better way Christ has provided. So this is the heart of instruction in Christian conduct worthy of our faith in Jesus Christ in this chapter. In verse 1, therefore refers to what was just presented in chapter 11, which was the faith of the old covenant saints. We're firmly exhorted that in light of these heroic examples of faith, we should do all we can to run our race with endurance. The epistles often refer to the Christian life in terms of some, types of some type of athletics or some type of warfare that requires us to train and arm ourselves for spiritual endurance in battle. One commentator said, when we enter the Christian life through faith, we don't enter a playground, but a battleground. And that is so very true. So to follow Christ is no picnic. These cloud of witnesses knew that. It doesn't mean they're, they're in heaven when it says these cloud of witnesses looking down at us. They are the examples that we can follow to have a triumphant walk of faith. So I'm going to continue a little more with this sports analogy since that's kind of how this goes. I think of this cloud of witnesses like the jerseys on display in sports arenas or in a high school gym. And you know how they have the jerseys all up there with the uniform numbers of past team members who were outstanding players on the team. And these players aren't actually there, needless to say, but their jerseys remind us of how well they competed and won. So as Gloria shared last week, these were imperfect people who had to overcome trials and tragedies and their own sinful tendencies to have triumphant faith. But their earthly examples can help encourage us toward our own heavenly hope in Jesus. We also need to understand that God has specifically designed a different course in the race for each of us. Every run is running her own or his own race. In John 21, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, he told Peter to follow him. Follow me, Peter. Instead of responding, yes, Lord, I will follow you, he looks at John and says, but what about him, Lord? What's up with that? Jesus answered, what is that to you? He added, making it even more personal for Peter, he says, you follow me. Don't worry about John. You follow me. Don't look around at the other apostles. You follow me. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus, ladies, every step of the race, never taking our eyes off of his focus. It's okay every now and then if you see one of your fellow, you know, racers stumble a little bit, you know, you can pick them up maybe. It doesn't hold you back. You know, 
But you got to stay focused on what God's called you to do. Whatever race someone else is called to run, it's not up to us to compare or question it. We always will sometimes look around to other sisters or brothers in the Lord. Man, they got it easy. Wow. Their life is a breeze. How come my life is so bad? Nobody knows the trouble I'm And we do. We have our little pity parties and we, you know, compare ourselves among ourselves, which we are not supposed to do. And it's not a good thing. But we have to follow our own race. We also see in this passage that the weight we carry is different than the sin we carry. And it's different for each person as well. Some weight, though, isn't necessarily bad. For instance, you know, these things that we all mostly have. Very few of us do not. Technology is a great thing. Can I get an amen? It keeps us in touch with our loved ones and gives us instant access to information at our fingertips. And the gospel is being spread all over the world like never before in human history because of this technology. So it's not a bad thing in and of itself. But if the first thing you think of grabbing in the morning is your phone instead of your Bible, that may be an issue. If you spend hours a day on social media sites, that may be an issue. If you spend a lot of time and battery on on on-demand TV and movies, that may be an issue. Shopping, exercise, makeup, hair, whatever dominates your time and attention in place of pursuing the things of God can be a weight holding you back. By themselves, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. But if they hinder your spiritual maturity and progress to the point you're not growing in the Lord, you need to consider them a weight. You need to think about how could you better manage your time and energy to be more fruitful? What old or new habits are dragging you down? What thoughts interrupt your ability to stay focused on Jesus? What aspects of your personality keep you from achieving the next spiritual milestone in your life? I know some of us, and I'm among them, so I'm you know, not, not saying I'm not. I have my I never and I always. And we all have those in our lives that I will never do this, I will always do that. We need to examine some of those absolutes in our lives. Are they weights keeping us from progressing in our spiritual maturity and walk with the Lord? Is that keeping you from being used more effectively for his kingdom? Because if you never and you always, that means you've left a whole lot of stuff out and you've made yourself unavailable to God for a lot of things. Look at your routines. Ask the Lord to show you what may be weighing you down. And then there's sin. Well, sin is sin. I don't can't dress that up. Can't put lipstick on a pig, as my boss used to say. The sin that easily besets or ensnare us is something that deliberately hinders us from winning a race. It, the ensnare means it's something that boxes you in. It makes you unable to move forward. It physically prevents your progress. I think of it like when, well, because I'm an aggressive driver. Okay, I said that, and I don't have a Jesus sticker on my bumper. If I get boxed in on the freeway, you know, surrounded by cars that won't allow me to move or change lanes or whatever, I get really frustrated. 
That's what sin does in our lives. It boxes us in. A basketball game, your opponents are surrounding you on the court, and they won't let you go forward. They won't let you go back. They won't let you pass. They won't let you shoot. They won't let you do anything. This is what it means to be ensnared by your sin, to be blocked in by it, unable to move, unable to progress. And we all know what sin can do when it's unchecked, unconfessed, and unrepented. It traps us, and it will do its destructive work in our lives and in the lives of others. James 1.15 says it well, says, Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Don't be trapped, ladies, or blocked in by your sin. Don't downplay the sins in your life. Confront them. Confess them. Commit them to the cross for forgiveness and restoration, and then move forward. Next, as disciples of Christ, we have great hope as we, looking at verses 2 through 4, as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls." You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Jesus is the object, the prince, the captain, the perfecter, and for these purposes, for our sports analogy, the coach of our faith. Jesus is the one who began a good work in us, and he will be faithful to complete it. In our race, we are to be driven just as much by faith as we are drawn by hope. He endured much worse from an exceedingly hostile world that illegally, systematically, religiously, and politically condemned him to death. But he knew the Father's plan to be perfect, so he willingly gave his life. Jesus is our supreme example of obedience to God's will. To have hope in anyone else is to deny the sacrifice he made for us to be accepted in the Beloved. Believe in Jesus and be saved. But just believing isn't enough to finish a race. Even the demons believe, the Bible says. It's the hope we have as disciples of Jesus that will never fail to take us to the finish line. And I have a slide, if they'll uh, put it up now, about what it is that's different between just a mere believer and a disciple. A believer says belief is cheap and costs me nothing. A disciple says to follow Christ costs me everything. A believer says I believe in Christ's work for me. A disciple says discipleship is the result of Christ's work in me. Believers say consider themse- believers consider themselves first. Disciples consider Christ first. Believers produce no fruit. Disciples are known by their fruit. Belief saves my soul, but disciples glorify Christ. And believers aren't necessarily known as Christians, but disciples are always known as Christians. These are the marks of the hope we have as disciples in Jesus. And I'll have handouts if anyone's interested in the slide at the end of the evening. The writer here now goes on to detail all that Christ has done in his own race for our salvation. He joyfully died a humiliating death on the cross so he could rise victorious as our exalted high priest, mediator, and coach, 
giving us direct access to the Lord. We are challenged to consider him who endured such hatred and injustice as our example before we become weary and discouraged in our souls. To consider Jesus means to seriously contemplate, reason, and carefully evaluate all that he endured. And again, we're asked to objectively assess. Remember, faith is not a feeling. We're to be objective and rational in the way that we examine our faith, examine how we live it out. And so when we consider Christ, we're asked to be objective about all that he's done for us in order to give us a hopeful future. If we make a truly honest assessment of what Jesus suffered on our behalf, we have nothing to complain about, really, ladies. He sacrificed all. We struggle, mostly. Jesus gave it all for us. We haven't given up nearly enough. Paul encouraged the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 14 through 17, not to lose heart, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. And our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's the only weight we should be carrying, ladies the weight of the coming glory we will have in Christ Jesus. This is the hope that we have as disciples of Jesus. But as disciples, we must also be prepared to be trained by our Heavenly Father as he does his perfecting work in our lives. Now we come to the parental discipline that accompanies the hope we have as disciples in Jesus. In verses 5 through 7, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I don't like chastening, do you? I don't care for it at all. I've been uh, reading a book lately and... It's really been convicting me of a lot of things I am and am not. And so I kind of go to it and I say, oh, Holy Spirit, do your work. And then when the Holy Spirit starts to work, I say, ah, mm, not right now. (laughs) Another time, perhaps. Because that's what chastening does. It makes us recoil. It makes us push back. We're encouraged by this passage from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 that God is a perfect parent. He disciplines us in love to define and refine our character, to build up and develop our faith and trust in him. His motives are right and righteous toward us at all times. And as earthly parents, we ourselves prepare, you know, our children for life. We provide resources for them. We try to protect them from harm. God is no different. He puts boundaries before us so that we can stay within a safe and protected place. His loving training and correction are evidence that we're his children. Have you ever been in a department store or some public place and you've seen some child going wild? And what's the first thing pops in your mouth? Where is your mother? Because they're unruly, they're undisciplined. And they're just, you know, all over the place. But not our God. He's not going to allow us just to run wild and free like that. 
1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Romans 8, 16 through 18 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Part of the hope we have as disciples of Jesus is our adoption as children into the family of God because of Christ. The full promises we have as children and heirs are yet to come. But in light of the inheritance we have in Christ, we can abide the Lord's chastening as it does its correcting and perfecting work in us. Verses 8 through 11 say, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is always hard to take at the time it's being meted out. But without it, we lose our claim as children of God. And if we're not children of God, then we lose all legal rights and benefits to an inheritance in his kingdom. We become spiritual orphans with no spiritual father, no spiritual identity, and no spiritual name. Uh, some of you know that I was raised by my grand grandmother. My mother died when I was very young. And we called her Big Mama. And Big Mama was a God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Southern Baptist. Amen. She quoted scripture to us daily as she taught us about life, some of which I didn't even know until I started reading the Bible myself. But Big Mama had a few proverbs of her own. One she would quote quite often was, yeah, y'all keep on now. A hard head's going to make a soft behind. I don't think that needs much translation, and she used that mostly on my brother. Uh, <laughs> but bottom line, it means that the more you resist discipline, the more discipline is applied. The Board of Correction applied to the seat of learning, and she was very adept at it. The Lord says it shouldn't be hard for us to accept his divine perfect discipline if we submit it to it from our earthly fathers. Shouldn't we expect our heavenly father to do the same? He is our good, good father, the perfect parent, perfect in all his ways, with perfect love, with perfect motive, and a perfect plan for us. He chastens us so we can be beneficiaries of his holiness and become more like him. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. We are to be holy as our father is holy. Is that process fun? No way. It requires a lot of effort, some pain, and some struggle on our part. Uh, just recently, we're going through the book of Exodus in our Wednesday morning studies. And if you go through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see all these systems of laws and regulations and rules. And, and it's like, 
you read through these things and says, who would have thought to make that a law? God did, because these came from, from God. But more still, I, it, it st- struck me just, just all of a sudden. I said, I was kind of grieved. I said, a holy God had to consider the wickedness of man to develop such detailed and specific laws for us to follow. Who knows the heart of man better than God? God knows his children well. That's why he sent Jesus to take the ultimate chastening in our place. Because he knew we couldn't handle it. So he never gave us more than we can handle. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross, bearing the penalty for our sins. God's goal is to train us to produce good fruit. He disciplines, not punishes. The hope we have as disciples of Jesus means that our faith can endure the challenges and chastening that come from following him, that we have every opportunity to be successful in the race if we keep our eyes on him, and that remembering we can do no better than Jesus as our mediator, high priest, and coach. Next, in verses 12 through 17, we're faced with a marathon that will test our endurance to show that we can have the hope of strength through Jesus. Verse 12 and 13 read, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. I don't think I mentioned to you guys earlier, I hate running. Absolutely hate it. It's not, I, I will walk you to death, but I hate running. So when I had read this description of, you know, the, the hands hanging down and the feeble knees and, you know, the stumbling across the path, I said, that's me. That's what I look like at the end of a run. The only thing it didn't add was, and panting like a dog. <laughs> I hate running. I'm thinking as we, uh, I'm getting ready to go on the Israel tour with the church and having been there at least once before, I know that there's a lot of walking involved. And, and the, uh, the travel um, agent told us Sunday that we're going to do four to five miles of walking a day. And I remember that from our last trip. And so I know that I have to prepare my body for that trip. You can't just go from being a couch potato to hiking up in Getty, you know, to the waterfalls in the caves. That ain't going to happen, ladies. <laughs> Something's going to give out if you don't prepare yourselves for that kind of rigor. So I have some good friends, thank you, Blanca, that are taking me through my paces and testing me and, and having, helping me to push myself so I can enjoy what God has for me at the end of this particular race. It's going to be glorious. But if I don't prepare for it, I sit at the, at, the, at the bottom of a lot of these beautiful monuments and historical sites because I can't make it. I can't get there with what I've got. I've got to be trained. I've got to be disciplined. If I were in shape, I'd be able to run it a little better. But that's not going to happen. But that's what the Lord has for us. He trains us so we can run well and finish strong, that we have the hope of strength through Jesus if we submit to his discipline and training. Where would we be if we were only left to our own strength? Because we don't have enough to finish this race. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
2 Timothy 4.17, Paul tells Timothy, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Paul also says in Ephesians 6.10, that finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is the assurance and the hope we have as disciples of Jesus. In another part of the race, we're to chase an attitude of peace with everyone as part of our pursuit of holy character. This is absolutely needed to be a disciple of Jesus and an heir of his inheritance. In verses 14 through 17 say, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. We are to take great care in our relationship, ladies, and our conduct so that we don't miss out on God's grace for us. Uh, Some of you who are gardeners, you may be familiar with root suckers. Does anybody know what a root sucker is? Well, a root sucker is those stems that shoot up all around the base of a tree. And they ruin the appearance of the tree and they compete with the tree for food, resources, and energy. The leaves start to look a little different and they might even become a different tree altogether sometimes. And if these root suckers are not removed, they produce weak, inferior fruit. So they must be aggressively attacked and not allowed to steal precious nutrients from the tree. But only regular healthy pruning can can prevent them from growing at all. And if there is a lack of spiritual, personal, or relationship peace, then all the poison of bitterness, unforgiveness, and anger will be your fruit. You become a toxic person who only brings strife and discontent and turmoil, damaging people and relationships all around you. This is how believers, I think, give a bad witness with unbelievers, and they also stumble fellow believers. Don't be a root sucker. There is nothing Christ-like in being contentious and sour, and it falls dismally short of the holiness we are called to be in Christ. Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The reference to fornicators in Esau relates to people who become so consumed with self-satisfaction and temporary pleasure that they forfeit the eternal blessings God has for them. As you might recall from Genesis story, uh, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. He, he came in from being out on the hunt or wherever he had been, and like every young man, I'm assuming he was a young man because I've heard this from so many young men, he came in the door and said, I'm starving to death. Have you heard that from your kids, especially the boys? Well, he gave, his, gave up his right to the spiritual succession and responsibility of patriarch of his family to satisfy his in-the-moment desire. That's why Jacob is named among the patriarchs instead of Esau as Isaac's oldest son. It should have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Guess who you don't hear in that succession? But 
That's why Jacob isn't named. But that didn't seem to be a big deal to Esau at the time. What really caused him to grieve was when Jacob, when he went into cahoots with his mom, Rebekah, they deceived Isaac into giving Jacob the double blessing that was also reserved for the oldest son. Esau didn't grieve over the loss of his birthright. I don't think he cared about the spiritual and and patriarchal responsibilities that he had. He only got mad when the money got taken, when the inheritance got taken. He never valued God's promises to Abraham that were to be passed on from generation to generation. He regretted but never repented of his rash act of rejecting what God intended for him. He was impatient and lost it all. We need to value the promises of the Lord as he does his perfecting work in our lives. The hope of strength through Jesus enables us in those difficult times for seemingly impossible promises and situations that test our endurance. The hope we have as disciples of Jesus allow us to run well and finish strong to not be root suckers damaging people and relationships, rather to be peacemakers and useful for the gospel of Christ. And it causes us to value the promises of the Lord, no matter how long it takes. As he begins to wind up this chapter, the writer reminds us of the hope of a new covenant in Jesus in verses 18 through 27. And I'll read through 24 initially. He says, for you have not come to the mountain that they may, that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And once again, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers of the hope of a new covenant in Jesus. And we already covered that in previous lessons in chapters 7 through 8. But this time he paints a very vivid word picture of the fear and judgment of the old covenant given on Mount Sinai, contrasted with the grace and beauty associated with the new covenant description coming to Mount Zion. Here God and angels dwell, and Jesus, the mediator and perfect sacrifice, exceeds even the excellent but temporary sacrifices such as those offered by Abel. He reminded them that their citizenship is in heaven with Jesus. So why go back to a dead religion, basically, is what he's saying. A dead way of life. A dead world compared to the eternity waiting for us with our God. God has given us everything, ladies, for life and godliness, all that and heaven too. It doesn't get any better than that. No reason to go back. The hope of a new covenant from Jesus is extended in verses 25 through 27 with a warning and the wonder of a new creation. 
We see that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The strict warning here is very similar to those stated earlier in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, and 10, 28 through 31. We get warnings all over this book. But in this case, it's warning specifically against refusing the Lord Jesus Christ and willful disobedience of his word. Going back to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, the writer uses the example of Exodus as for when God directly spoke to the people from Mount Sinai. And though they heard his voice, they were afraid and didn't want him to speak to them directly anymore, only through Moses. And you'll read time and time again throughout the Bible how the Lord gave his commandments to the people. They said they would follow him, but they repeatedly turned away from the word of the Lord. Now Jesus being better than the prophets, angels, or even Moses is warning that he's going to shake more than a mountain. He's going to shake both heaven and earth when he returns to establish his kingdom. Second Peter three ten and 11 says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief at the, in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be destroyed, what manner of persons ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? Jesus is coming back, ladies. Are we going to run the race with his chastening and discipline? Or are we going to have feeble hands and weak knees and get off the trail and the path? So the question was posed by the same, the same question was posed to the Old Testament people that if God didn't, if they didn't escape his judgment and they spent the first 40 years of their freedom in the wilderness, how can we expect not to receive similar judgment? But under the hope of a new covenant from Jesus, that can be avoided. And he's just begging these these Hebrew Christians, don't go back. The new is so much better than the old. All the practices and protection under the old covenant were gone and were replaced with a new, better covenant and greater hope in the Lord. Christ is the solid rock on which we stand and build up our most holy faith for eternity. The hope of a new covenant from Jesus reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And while we wait, God has given us everything for life and godliness. We have hardship, but we also have hope. Don't go back to dead end living. Christ is the solid rock. The new covenant and hope we have in Christ is still better. And then finally, we have the hope of an inheritance in Jesus in verses 28 and 29. And since the old covenant provides that unshakable inheritance in Jesus, we must possess, practice, and live in the grace of God to serve him with righteous and holy service. Verses 28 and 29 read, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace 
by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. This emphasizes that Christians are currently in the process of receiving our inheritance in Christ. The gift and this process will go long into the future. We have received grace through faith that enables us to run with endurance because it is an abiding faith that looks beyond to the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Ladies, as we look to Jesus for our focus, for our discipline, for our encouragement, for our hope, let's not forget that we have confidence in the hope of an inheritance in Jesus that we are just now starting to redeem, that, but that will go on paying dividends into eternity. The kingdom of God is present and yet to come. So don't grow weary and don't go back.